I hope you're not sitting there saying, I wish I could go with the kids. Would you please take your Bible, hope you have it with you this morning, and turn to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 38 to 42. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42 together this morning. Because they were such a big part of the life of Jesus Christ, uh, all the Gospels have lots of stuff to say about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the Sanhedrin, and those that were religious leaders, but not even really a part of either one of those uh, leading groups. And today is no different. We're going to uh, learn some more about what the problem was with these guys and that we don't want to repeat that. The scribes and the Pharisees, religious leaders of Israel, the scribes are like lawyers in the law of the Old Testament in the first five books of the Bible. They're experts. They've got it memorized. They know it forward and backward. They can tell you what the uh, verses say. They had it memorized, and they had a hard time living any of it. And we don't want to be like Pharisees who know so much about the word of God and who live so little of it. And that's what we strive not to be. The scribes and Pharisees today in Israel are unbelievable in terms of the way they're acting. Jesus has done miraculous signs over and over and over. He's done signs no one else has ever done. He's raised some people from the dead. And they have the audacity, the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees have the audacity to ask him, hey, uh, perform a miracle to prove that you're the Messiah. (laughs) Are you kidding? That's what he's been doing all this time. The Old Testament said when Messiah comes, these are the miracles that he's going to perform. And that's what Jesus has been doing. What do you mean, show us a sign? What do you mean you want to see a sign to prove I'm Messiah? They're all over the place, and I've done tons of them. Well, they want an attesting miracle. That's what the word sign means. Something that will prove that you are what you say you are. It it attests to, to the truthfulness of who you are. And today is a case in point. Jesus just got through, not long ago in the context here, healing a blind, mute man, and then delivered him from being demonized. And that was a spectacular uh, event in the life of Israel. And people were wondering who he was. So they step up and say, you know, we don't want the people talking about this guy being the Messiah. That can't be true. We want to just get the word out that he's doing his work by Satan. Satan is the one that's empowering him. He didn't do some miracle of God in heaven, not our Yahweh. They wouldn't say Yahweh, but not Yahweh. Uh, He's working for the devil. They say that he was working by the power of the dark forces of this world, of the God of this world, Satan. Now, having just missed the point again, they say, we want to see an attesting miracle from you. Can you see them all gathered around, arms crossed, waiting for Jesus to produce a miracle that will finally convince them he is the Messiah? What do you want? What, what on earth would make you guys change your mind? And I think of Lazarus and the rich man who died. And the rich man's in hell and he's going through torment. And he begs Father Abraham over the uh, abyssal plain between the two uh, of paradise and, and where he was in Gehenna. And he says, send somebody back to my brothers to tell them so they don't come to this place. And what was Abraham's response? I'm not going to send Lazarus back to tell your brothers what's going on down here. They have the prophets and they have the word of God. Let them believe the prophets. And you know what? The same is true today. Uh, We're taking uh, the disciples' word for it that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. 
None of us were there. None of us saw that. None of us have, have been in the presence of the physical Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we believe what they said almost 2,000 years ago because they were eyewitnesses and they were there and we believe it. These guys can't even believe what's in front of them demonstrating who Jesus Christ is. And we don't want to be unbelieving like them. We want to be believing. Well, they want to see an attesting miracle. They have seen all kinds of attesting miracles from Jesus already. And I'm going at length to describe this because I want you to understand just how hard their hearts are. Just how far away from God these people really are. These are the people that demand Jesus do something to prove who he is and deny everything that he's already done. All kinds of signs. What on earth are they looking for? What sign would satisfy their curiosity? And the answer is there is no sign like that. How do you know? Because they've already seen everything there is to see. That's how we know. The reason is given to us in Matthew 13, 14 through 15. Why won't these people understand these signs? Well, let's look at that. It's not far away from where we're at in Matthew 12. But it says this in, uh, in 13, 13. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. So what Jesus is saying, you saw my miracles, but you don't really see them. And while hearing, they do not hear. You've heard my teaching, but you really haven't heard it, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah, which was hundreds of years before this, is being fulfilled, which says this. You, speaking of Israel, will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. In other words, you're not going to make any sense out of what you're seeing. For the heart of this people has become dull, it's like a rock. With their ears, they are scarcely hearing, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Let's look at one more of those. Paul talks about it in the book of Romans. Uh, chapter 11, verses uh, 8 to, to 11. Romans chapter 11. Paul says, let, let me pick it up in verse 7. I like that. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. But just as it is written, God gave them the spirit of a stupor, eyes that see not and ears that hear not, down to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. That's David, the king of Israel, who's prophesying about the people of Jesus' day who are not going to be able to see and understand. Now, if you know Jesus as your personal Savior here this morning, you're one of those who did see and did understand, and you looked at the text, and the text said, if you trust Jesus as your Savior and believe he forgave you of your sins, you get eternal life. You believed that. You saw it. You understood it. It made sense to you. And you didn't see one single miracle that Jesus did in the Bible. You just read about it. These people are seeing those miracles, and they just disbelieve it. Sometimes people are unwilling to see what's right in front of them or to be swayed by a mountain of evidence, and that's what these guys were like. Now let's read our text from uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. It says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see an attesting miracle from you. That's what the word sign is, Samion. 
But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign and a testing miracle. And yet no attesting miracle will be given to it, but the attesting miracle of Jonah the prophet. Now everybody in Jesus' audience that day, every single person knew about Jonah, knew what happened to him. He was swallowed by a big fish, regurgitated on a beach, and then he unhappily went to Nineveh, preached the gospel there, and the whole nation repented. And he was mad about it, and he's going up on a hill, and God created this little palm thing to grow up over him to give him shade out of the hot sun, and he was angry about everything, and so God took the shade away. He was angry about that, and God basically said, don't I have a right to bring salvation to whoever I want? And it's not your right to sit here and sulk. Now, the sign of Jonah, we need to talk about that. We want to know what it is. And so here Jesus said, uh, an, uh, an evil and adulterous generation uh, seeks for a sign in verse 30, 39. And yet no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. So Jesus is going to do the sign of Jonah the prophet. What is it? We'll find out. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, it was a great fish of some kind, just like we don't know what the fruit in the garden was, we don't know what fish this was either. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now I want you to stop and say, there's your connection. Jonah, three days in the belly of the big fish, and Jesus Christ, if you will, in the belly of the earth where he uh, was buried. Verse 41. Jesus goes on to say, the men of Nineveh, why bring them up? Because those are the people that Jonah went to, preached the gospel, and they were saved. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation. He's talking about the current generation, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They will stand up with this generation and will condemn it. Imagine that, a pagan nation who didn't give God the time of day, Jonah walks through there. It's a three-day walk through the city, proclaims the gospel. You better repent. They do. The king himself gets up, repents, takes his robe off, puts on sackcloth, and, and pours ashes on his head, commands everybody else to do that, and they repent. These are Gentiles. They didn't have the, uh, the authority of the word of God in front of them all their life. They didn't have synagogues to go to. They didn't have a temple to worship in that belonged to God, and every one of them turns to God. Nineveh. <laughs> Think of your worst enemy. The person that hates you the most in this world or doesn't like you and has bad things to say about you and say that that person is going to stand up at your judgment before God and bear witness to your lack of belief. Ouch. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at judgment and will condemn them because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. That was the queen of Sheba, wasn't it? And so Jesus is saying, look what these people did in the past. Nineveh repents because some guy preaches. And all, the, all this stuff that, you know, we've read about the Queen of Sheba when she came from the south, all that way just to hear the wisdom of a man of God. And she heard it, and she, she said, I, I've never heard wisdom like this in my whole life. This is, this is something I've never heard of. And there were wise people all over the world in those days. Solomon was beyond them all. And they, they came and they exhibited faith with just a word from a prophet, Jonah. Or they came and they, they came to faith because of the wisdom God gave a king. And Jesus says, you people 
are standing there wanting to uh, ask me to do some kind of an attesting miracle when I've been doing them for all kinds of people all over your country and you can't see it and you can't hear it and you don't understand it. And so Jesus talks uh, about that and I think it's good for us. Let's look at verse 38 together first, all right? Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said, Teacher, we want to see an attesting miracle. And what we learn there is that unbelievers often ask Jesus to prove that he is real so they can believe. All kinds of people all throughout history have asked, uh, hey, you guys out there, you, you tell me about your Jesus, prove it. Prove that he's alive. Prove that he's real. Prove to me. Let, let, him, let him do a miracle for me. Well, the religious leaders, unswayed by hard evidence, tell Jesus that they want to see an attesting miracle from him. They'd like to see him prove it. Perhaps thinking that he was uh, working for Satan, which they said he was earlier, they were saying, hey, do something on your own power. Let's see what you can do without the power of Satan. Remember, that's what they accused him of. Or perhaps they were saying that nothing he had done proves messiahship. Uh, uh, so, all right, so you've raised a couple of people from the dead. The widow of Nain, uh, the first person that's recorded that Jesus raised her son from the dead. By the way, you should pay attention in church. Because one day I walked into the Pizza Hut and three of our church people were sitting there and I said, I will buy your dinner today if you can tell me who the first person is that Jesus raised from the dead. I only bought me and Noel's dinner that day. It's the widow of Nain's son, okay? So if I, that comes up, you might get a free dinner. See, it's, it's worth listening, all right? Or perhaps they were saying that nothing he has done proves messiahship. Uh, try for some better stuff. We need to see some more miraculous stuff. You know, you said you could move a mountain with faith. Let's just stand here and watch that, maybe. Even though he is doing exactly what the Old Testament said Messiah would do, they don't care. They're basically saying that they're not moved at all to think that he is the Messiah, the promised of God, the anointed one. In unbelief, they were seeking some sign that would convince them that he was genuine that would convince him that he was genuine. Have you ever thought about that? I've run into a lot of people with the same request. A lot of people. And one of the things they don't have is what I heard our brother Jeff preach about at his cousin's funeral. He said he humbled himself and made Jesus his savior. Proud people are not going to get a sign from God. Unbelieving, proud people with hardened hearts are not going to have God do a tap dance for them as a miracle. People have said to me, prove Jesus is real. I'm trying to tell them the gospel. I, I have. I'm trying to say, you know, you need to ask Jesus to be your savior. You need to repent of your sins. Turn away from them. Let Jesus pay for your sins. And they say, prove Jesus is real. Or show me some demonstrable proof that he exists. Now, have you ever had that happen to you? You're trying to tell somebody about Jesus, and they said, prove it. Prove it. I have never heard from him. I've never seen him. He's never done anything for me in my life. Uh, he's going to have to appear to me and prove it. That's what they've said. If he is real, he needs to speak to me. That's what they've said. Some want him to reveal himself to them and do some miracle. Have you run into that? I've run into that many times. And I have even stopped in my head while they're trying to decide whether uh, they want to hear the evidence or see Jesus. And I've prayed that God would show them that he is real. 
that God would, would show them, or maybe even prove it to him. I can't think of one single time when I've done that, and I've done it many times, I can't think of one where that prayer was answered in a clear way. I find that to be a little bit odd, the way they wanted him to do it. And it varies. You know, some of you say, well, just let him appear to me, or let him show me some miracle, or let him do this, or let him do that, and, and it doesn't happen. I want to look at Romans 1, 18 to, uh, four, I'm sorry, 8 to 24. If you'll turn there, Romans 1. And here we're going to be talking about the hardness of the hearts of men and women. In Romans 1, 18, Paul records this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, look, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So God has revealed how angry he is with unrighteousness, and they don't care because they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Do you see that? God has put in us something in our souls where we have a, a desire and a need for the eternal, for something that's significant, something that will last, something that won't go away. That need is there because God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. That's creation, so that they are without excuse. <laughs> Why is the unsaved, unrighteous person still responsible for, for their not accepting Christ as Savior? The answer is they're responsible because of creation, where God revealed himself, revealed who he is, and they just excuse it without any, any thought of what it is. Verse 21. For even though they knew God, going back to verse 19, they did not honor him as God, just like the Pharisees are saying, you're not the Messiah, or give thanks to God for what he has done. But they have become futile, vain in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Oh, how many, how many wise men and women are there in the world who, because of their science and their abilities with math, have said, Christians are stupid, and the wisdom of God is insane. It's not real. Professing to be wise, the Bible says they become fools, and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the ima an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds, and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Get it, the creations to, re, to get them to respond to God and their worshiping creation. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. God gave them over. God gave them over. Why? Because they're proud, they're stubborn, they're arrogant, and they come from a state that has on their license plate, prove it to me, show me. <laughs> and that's what they want. And I have prayed that God would do that for certain people, trying so hard to get them to see they need Jesus. And I've yet to have God do that for that person. I wonder if it's because of their heart. There are times when God does reveal himself to people. Josiah Lambert tells me that uh, Muslims don't come to Christ unless Christ appears to them. And I've heard that before from other people. Uh, but I'm going to say this. Uh, and when that happens, it's not because they're proud and arrogant and not willing to accept the truth. In those times, there is not the presence of a rebellious skepticism 
that I have felt in some people, and I think you probably have too, when you're trying to witness to people. In verses 39 to 40, we learn this. God does not perform for evil and spiritually adulterous people, but will only give them the sign of his resurrection. Now what I've done is I've uh, taken all that stuff in those verses 39 and 40 and tried to put them in one succinct uh, statement, and that's what you have there in your bulletin. And that is, even those people that have told me I need to see a sign or I'm not going to do this, they already have a sign. And it's the same sign these people have. It's the sign of Jonah. And so let's look at it in verse 39a, the first part there. He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for an attesting miracle, yet no attesting miracle will be given to it except the attesting miracle that was illustrated in Jonah the prophet. So speaking of the hardened hearts of Israel, Jesus calls them an evil and spiritually adulterous generation. Spiritual adultery is when you're supposed to belong to God, and like in our case, I'm supposed to belong to Jesus, but I'm worshiping someone else or something else. You know that we can put things in front of God and worship those things like money and possessions and recreation and sports and you name it, our business, whatever it is, we can put that before God. It becomes an idol, and now we're doing what they were doing. Spiritual adultery is when you should belong to God faithfully, committed, righteous, and you decide to do something else. Spiritual adultery is when a person who's supposed to be God's serves and worships other gods. And it's spiritually cheating on God. Their hearts are evil with that prove-it-to-me attitude of the -the dyed-in-the-wool skeptic as opposed to faith. They say there is no proof already that uh, what he says is true and that he is who he is. They see the evidence, they hear the evidence in the word of God, they dismiss it as unimpressive or uh, it's, it's fanatical, whatever. Jesus has correctly evaluated the spiritual condition that they are in. They are not for God at all. In verse 39b, the only sign they're going to get is the sign of Jonah that Jonah represents. They were clearly asking for a sign instead of believing. What is the sign of Jonah? That's the big question in this text. The sign of Jonah is that Jesus is who he said he is, the Christ. That's what the sign is, basically, as you boil it down. The sign, however, would only be recognized by them, the Pharisees and Sadducees, after they crucified him. And that's why Jesus brought it up. That, in reality, would be one last opportunity for them to believe in Jesus. Dr. Ross put it that way. Uh, in other words, when Jesus resurrects from the dead. And what do they do? They, they lie about it. They say that his disciples came and stole his body to make it look like a resurrection. And they paid off the guards who, by the way, are guarding for their life. Because if you let somebody go that you're supposed to be guarded, you'll be killed. And they paid them off. And they talked to uh, their le- leaders of Rome and said, these guys are okay. Don't kill them. And they just did away with the whole thing. Then they spread the word, tell everybody that his disciples stole the body. He didn't raise from the dead. And that's their last opportunity before their death. Jesus will follow this with two illustrations of unbelief and belief. In verse 40, Jesus teaches that as Jonah was in the belly of the fish. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that the Bible tells us things that happened in the past that aren't true, if it says that, how can we believe what Jesus is going to say? Jesus believed that Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish. And that's why he's using it as an illustration. We should believe it too. Because it's the truth. 
And so he, Jesus, would also be in the heart of the earth in his grave for three days and three nights. This is essentially judgment before salvation. Jesus took the judgment of God on us. He spent his time in the grave. Then he rose again, and he provided salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection. In Jonah's case, it was his own sin that was being dealt with. That's why he was in the belly of the fish. God said, go to Nineveh, and he said, no. I'm not going to Nineveh. I don't like those people. I hate those people. I'm not going there because I know you're going to send your spirit, and they're going to repent, and I don't want them to repent. They're nasty people. So he gets to spend some time for his sin in the belly of the fish. Jesus was not in the grave because of his sin. He was there because of ours. Jonah's in the the belly of the fish because of his. And Jesus had the sins of, of mankind on him that was judged. Then a resurrection of sorts for the prophet, because he was uh, spit up on the beach by the fish. He got another chance to go to Nineveh, and he got up and he went to Nineveh. And a physical resurrection from the dead for Jesus Christ. So the sign of Jesus' resurrection, which matches the sign that happened to Jonah, that was forecasting the sign of Jesus, that should convince him of the truthfulness of the word of God. But we already know what they did with that. They said, nope, not going to believe it. The sign was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as seen with with Jonah. Jonah would have been as good as dead, Dr. Ross says, had God not rescued him from the belly of the great fish. That's right. I don't know how long you can live in the belly of the fish. I would think not that long. And God gave him his life back. Jesus was resurrected by the Father, by the Spirit, and he did it himself as well. Repentance based on the message would give life. So Jesus says to his opponents, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will stand up and judge you because they had less than you, and you didn't pay attention. So in verses 41 to 42, Many have believed with far less evidence than Jesus has given his contemporaries. Many of Jesus' day have already believed with far less evidence that he is the Messiah than he has given these guys, the leaders of Israel, religiously, and they don't believe. Verse 41 says there's going to be judgment coming for this generation. Why? Because you didn't believe. There's always judgment if you don't believe. Always judgment. If you do believe and you're living righteously, then there is grace and goodness from God. Well, this is a reminder of the problem that a guy named Thomas had, trying to believe in the resurrection. If you go to John uh, with, with me here, John chapter 20. You remember the scene? The disciples are kind of hiding out from, from the world because they don't want to get caught and go to death like Jesus did. And so they're in this room. But Thomas, one of the disciples, one of the 12, called Didymus, which means twin, because well, he had a twin brother, Uh, was not with them when Jesus came. So the first time Jesus came in that room, he wasn't there. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of his nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. (laughs) Okay, we just had, uh, you know, we just had uh, 11 other people tell you, or 10 at that point, 10 other people say, We saw Jesus. We talked with him. He was here. You can rejoice. And he says, I'm not going to believe that unless I see it. Prove it to me. 
After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, in other words, he walked right through a locked door, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Yeah, if you see that, that'd be a good thing to say right off the bat. Don't be afraid. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, now Jesus wasn't there eight days ago, not in person. He knows exactly what happened. So he, he picks out Thomas, and he says to Thomas, Thomas, over here, reach here your finger and see my hands. Okay, so we have nail prints. Apparently, in the risen Lord, the body still retained the evidence of his resurrection. Uh, put your finger on that. Do you see that? That's, that's where I was nailed to the cross. And reach your hand. So he pulls up his robe. He says, stick your hand in my side where the, where the spear went in. And see that it's me. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. What's he saying? You should have believed what the other apostles told you. You don't need this. But apparently, Thomas answered and said immediately, My Lord and my God. Jesus jumps all over that and says to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. That's you. That's you. You didn't see Jesus resurrected from the dead. You didn't touch the nail prints in his hands or feel the scar on his side, but you believed. You believed without that, that evidence right in front of you. And the Lord says of you, you are what? You're blessed. You are blessed. How does Jesus want it to be? That way. You believe without seeing. That's what he wants. Well, leaving him and going back to our text, note especially that Jesus told Thomas in that, in that text in verse 29, Jesus is not interested in proving what is already true, right? He is interested in people applying simple faith in that truth. And that's all that it takes. Somebody just the other day asked me, how much faith do I have to have? And I said, about the faith of a mustard seed. <laughs> that's all you need. I like to tell people when I'm talking to them, well, I notice you sat in my chair here. And, you know, if, if you really don't trust anything, you should have looked it over to make sure it was still right. The pedestal's still up. The wheels are going to hold you. But you didn't. You just trusted it and sat in it. That's all the faith you need. He is happy to give evidence to those who are not skeptical. Maybe I just run into the skeptics. I don't know. No, I've had lots of people. Didn't need anything except the word of God. A refusal to believe is indicative of spiritual adultery and a wicked refusal to believe in God. That's the Pharisees. Verse 41. Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. Nineveh of all places. Like, be like a dirty word. Nineveh. A pagan Gentile culture of Jonah's day has a bright future. Pharisees, you do not. Nineveh does. That's because they repented of their sins. And so Jesus is saying of his present audience, someday in judgment, God is going to call Nineveh to come and bear witness against you for your unbelief. I wonder if that means that God may call other witnesses in our life to just verify what we've done, especially if you're an unbeliever and you had an opportunity. I'm sure he doesn't just do this for the nation of Israel. On the day Israel of, of Jesus' day is judged, 
they are in for a big surprise that runs against their expectations. Israel was kind of like us. They stand around looking at everybody else, talking about how sinful they are, and they don't seem to recognize how sinful them, uh, they are themselves. In Amos chapter 5, verse 18, God makes this very, very plain. The children of Israel are saying they want the day of the Lord to show up. God, bring your judgment. Bring your judgment. You ever said that? <laughs> Every time we say, I hope Jesus comes today, we're asking for judgment. He says, alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, all right, the great and terrible day of the Lord, you guys out there in Israel who are longing for that day because of your enemies, that's what they're thinking. He goes on to say, for what purpose will that day be of the Lord be to you? He says, all right, you're longing for judgment. What's it going to be for you on that day? What's going to be for you? See, they hadn't thought about that. They think they're righteous. He says, it will be darkness and not light, he means for you. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, you know, and tears him. Then he goes home and leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. And then God says, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light for you? Even gloom with no brightness in it? Yes, that's what it's going to be like. And now Jesus is telling the Pharisees, Nineveh is going to stand up and say, we bear witness against these people who had the greatness of Jesus and his kingdom in their presence. We didn't have that. We just had a prophet running through town uh, yelling at us to repent, and we did it. See, Jesus is really upset with this group, I think. How judgment is going to really be is a marvel. It's be amazing how Jesus does that. Who would have thought that the Ninevites would be called on to bear witness against the chosen people of God? Well, from people we expect to have no spiritual interest comes a miraculous turning from sin and a wholesale turning to God in faith, the Ninevites. They did that with a sermon from a foreign prophet. I'm sure that the vast majority of people had no idea who Jonah was. But they listened to his words. They said, this is of God, and they repented. Uh, they did that with one sermon from a traveling prophet going through their town. They probably did not know that he came just out of the belly of a fish a few days ago. They may have known that he was sulking up on the hillside, wishing they would all rot in Gehenna and didn't want their salvation to come. But they believed. You see that? There's people that really have no good reason except God says, you know, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to bring punishment. No good reason. They don't have a background in Yahweh. They don't love Yahweh. They haven't seen his prophets before. And they turn. And they turn simply by a message. They come to faith. This group has everything they need to turn to Jesus, and they won't do it. Uh, these believers from a foreign land will rise up and witness against the Jews on their judgment day. And then he says, and you know what? Something greater is here with you than with them. And people like to think, well, the greater thing must be Jesus. Well, it's not. Jesus is greater than any, any human being that ever lived. He's greater than all of us. But that's not what Jesus was saying. And he, when he said something greater in verse 42 than, than Solomon was here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Now, the something greater 
if we look at the person that it is in the, in the Greek text, it's not masculine, so it can't be Jesus. It's not feminine, so it can't be a lady that he's talking about. It's, it's in the neuter person. In other words, sexless. It's not male or female. It has to be something that is without sex, like the wind and the rain. Here it's the kingdom of God. And so what they're saying, Jesus is saying, something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon is in your midst. What is it? It's the kingdom of God represented by its king, Jesus. If it was Jesus, it would be in the masculine. So in verse 42, the queen of Sheba will also stand in condemnation of this generation. She sought out Solomon, who, whom God had gifted with great wisdom, and her willingness to have faith drove her on a long journey just to experience it. A woman of faith from a pagan society. Solomon had a great kingdom, but the one Jesus offers is infinitely greater than his. The kingdom was there in front of the religious leaders. Jesus was offering it. They failed miserably to realize or recognize the reality of the infinite saving value of what Jesus had for them. Okay, what about us? It is clear that there is danger, the danger of religious people who are really not redeemed people. They're religious, but they're not regenerate. They're not saved. They're not redeemed. That's a danger. We are to believe Jesus and his signs are to lead us to that belief, not to lead us away from him. Let me just go back to Exodus chapter 4 quickly here. Exodus chapter 4, verses 30 and 31, illustrative of what we're talking about. All right. And Aaron spoke all the words which Yahweh had spoken to Moses. Then he performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that, that Yahweh was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their afflictions, they bowed low and they worshipped. That's for us. However, the point is that the signs should not be necessary for people to believe. The truth is, and I can't think of a single person whom I was privileged to share the salvation account with that had to receive a miraculous sign in order to believe. Not one of those people who trusted Christ said, yes, I want that. Ask God to perform a miracle for him, not one. Or give me a sign, not one. But all the skeptics, yeah. God does use miraculous signs sometimes. I'm not saying that he doesn't. But not for the evil and adulterous people who are rebelliously hardened against all truth. And I want you to know that in case you run up against that when you're trying to witness to somebody. And they keep saying, well, God has to prove himself to me. No, he doesn't. He already has. And you need to believe it. God will not keep putting his precious pearls before them. Just like he told us, don't cast your pearls before the swine because of their hearts. Well, here's, here's three more things we can learn. Number one, and I, I think in your, I don't know why, but for some reason in your bulletin, does it say introduction? It should say application there. Uh, 
It says application, so it's just wrong in my message. Okay, all right, application, number one. What Jesus wants you and I to do is be believing, not unbelieving. And for those of us who know Christ as Savior, which, you know, I would say everybody in this room does. I, I don't know your heart for sure, but that means that we need to be believing with everything else in life as well, not just our salvation. Secondly, there are examples of people Jesus did miracles for, but they did not believe. Just because there's an attesting miraculous sign does not guarantee that somebody is going to come to faith in Christ. And the last one, that number three there, is a couple of Bible verses. And the first is Matthew 18, 1 to 4. How do you get into the kingdom and what makes you great in the kingdom? Jesus answers that question here. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know why they're asking that? Because Jesus just chose three of them to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration and see his glory. Everybody else had to stay at the bottom of the mountain. And I'm sure they're wondering, how come they got to go and not me? You know, Why didn't he pick me? Why don't I get the privilege of being in this, this inner circle with, with Jesus? And so they're asking, hey, uh, Jesus, uh, I know you're busy teaching everything, but what is, what, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Let's just say it. And he called a child to himself, and he set him before them, a little boy. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted, you turn, you repent, and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, it's the prideful people that are asking who's the greatest. Jesus said, I'm looking for a, a guy like this. Kid has no rights in society, got nothing. He's a kid in Israel, and yet he has simple faith. And that's what Jesus is saying. Unless you turn and become that, you can't be a child of God. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, friends, anybody can do that. He is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know why? Because he made it. He's there. That's what's great about it. Then he gives that warning, he who causes one of these little ones to stumble. He didn't just mean the child, but anybody who is, who is uh, having trouble in life and is lowly in life. It'd be better for them to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And we're going to cover that in about 26 sermons from now. And we'll get, get a handle on that. I bet you can't wait, right? And then Mark 10, 15, same thing. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took these children in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. I pray for you daily that God will give you the opportunity to share Jesus Christ with people. And today Jesus has talked about the fact that, that is, that's not always going to go smooth. But you just remember, God's in control, not us. And he can change the heart. He changed ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for teaching about these things. We, we know we're in a spiritual battle for the hearts and minds and souls of boys and girls and men and women. We want them to know Christ. And sometimes it does get a little difficult. Uh, now we know what's going on and why it is difficult. And we just want to be on your team. 
If you want to show somebody a miracle, we'll leave that up to you. And if you don't, that's up to you. We'll just be faithful with the message. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.